I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health, fitness, and well-being space to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. The show is brought to you by my company, Body Shop Performance. We create total solutions to optimize your health by focusing on sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. We work with busy professionals on a one-to-one basis for six or 12 months using the latest science and technology. And Body Shop also work with businesses who want to create a culture of energy, vitality and performance and position well-being as a competitive advantage. Find out more at bodyshopperformance.com and enjoy the show. Hi, it's Leanne of the Remove the Guesswork podcast. Just a quick one before you listen on the episode. I want to make you aware of a a webinar that we're running on Friday the 13th at 2.30pm London UK time. The webinar is called The Corporate Athlete, How to Get Your Teams Ready for the Rigors of Business Life. And in it, we'll be discussing the concept of the corporate athlete, how you can prepare your teams by making them more resilient, by promoting well-being, making sure they look after their sleep, their mental health and their energy levels so they can be happier more productive and generally better human beings, which is great for them and great for your organization. So the way to register is to go to the show notes and click on the link or search for the Corporate Athlete Body Shot Performance Eventbrite, and that will also find it. So Friday the 13th, 2.30 to 3.30, we hope to see you there and enjoy the show. Okay, Alessandro, welcome back to the show. It's really great to have you on. It's always a pleasure, Leanne. Always yeah. a pleasure. Well, it's been, believe it or not, two and a half years or so since we first recorded a podcast. You're one of the early episodes I did, and I'll link to that in the show notes so people <laughs> can can get more of your background and listen to all the stuff we talked about last time. But this time round, we're going to talk specifically about an area of research you've really focused on, which is blood glucose. And I think it's got lots of relevance for, for weight management, for longevity, and whatever else you're going to tell us all about. So just... Open up, if you like, you know, why are you focusing your research on blood glucose? Well, it was actually a very selfish reason to start with, because my lifestyle, I thought, was actually really good. I was eating quality food. I was already qualified as a nutritionist, and I was exercising very regularly. So I was taking all the boxes to do the right things. And for three months in a row... My fasting glucose, I just popped down to the doctor to do the usual annual check, and my fasting glucose was nearly six millimolar. Mm. And I thought, okay, so... Just for context, what, what is a normal amount? I do apologize. I'm so sorry. So the average is one thing. What I then realized was optimal was a completely different thing. So ideally, right now, I would try to aim for everyone between 4.4 and 4.6 millimolar. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the population averages are much higher. So normally the population average would be around 5.4, 5.6, depends by the location. However, generally speaking, if we take an average across the world, an average before someone is classified pre-diabetic is consistently above six millimolar. Okay. So you can see my predicament at the time. Yeah. With all the, you know, box ticked that my lifestyle was good and I was looking after myself and et cetera, et cetera. 
it was in my mind unjustified. So the doctor wasn't really concerned when I went back the following month to try again and the month after that to still try again. But what really concerned me was that if with the lifestyle I had at the time was already that elevated or so far removed from what would be an ideal optimal average, then what was going to happen later on in life? Mm. So I decided to try to investigate a little bit more and try to really understand much better about blood glucose regulation, insulin, insulin function, insulin resistance, and, and all the metabolic diseases that are associated with that. Okay. Just, can I just jump in for a sec? What, did you have any symptoms that led you to believe your blood glucose was elevated? No, not at all. Okay. So you no. stumbled across this by accident almost? That's exactly it. So okay. I went for a general annual, you know, annual checkup. You go measure your cholesterol, measure your bits and pieces and, and et cetera. And the only thing that was marked was 5.9. Uh, well, at the time it was 5.7. The following month was 5.9. And, and, and that is actually what triggers it. Hang on a minute. If now, given my lifestyle, I have that, especially because grandpa and my dad started to taper off towards type 2 diabetes. It was all dietary controlled, so they, they were not on any medication. However, I thought, well, if for whatever reason I'm heading up that way, either due to a certain percentage of proportion of causation due to genetics, but surely lifestyle mm. might have had an effect. So what can I do in order to improve that? And yep. that was the, that, that, that's what kind of set me off in that path. Right. Okay. So what did you find? Talk us through it. <laughs> I don't think we'll be able to cover that in half an hour. But... No, fair enough. What might be, I mean, given our audience are yes. busy professionals, people who may not have any idea of what their blood glucose levels are, they very probably don't. They very probably aren't wearing a, a blood glucose monitor or doing a sure. HbA1c test or so on. But what might be the most relevant things for them. And I think it's probably going to be around weight management, energy, possibly longevity. Yeah, yeah. So that, that all kind of seems to be, you know, satellited towards definitely that the glucose control and mm. the glycemic level control is a part of it. Mm -hmm. Which proportion, what percentage, it really depends by the starting point. So if you have someone that is type 2 diabetics, probably by regulating glucose within the bloodstreams and their glycemia can account for quite substantial proportions of their well-being. Someone that is, for example, a very active and sports person, then that may not be that relevant. There may be other reasons to do, to apply the 80-20 rule kind of thing. Yeah. So firstly, I'd like to say that I think given the fact that you can buy now little glucose monitors that are reasonably you know, accurate or accurate enough to, to raise a red flag when it's needed, mm -hmm. I would strongly suggest that people will check their fasting glucose at least a couple of times a week. Right. It's not really painful. My seven-year-old son was doing it without any major kerfuffle. I used to be needlephobic. That, <laughs> that stopped, did it? <laughs> so <laughs> so what, were you, what were you using then? I was using a simple, at the time, I'm not sure, can, can I mention brands in here? Or? Yes, of course, okay, yeah. Cool. So normally I, I, I checked a brand called Abbott and I had a meeting with them and, and I checked 10 
of their monitors across a lab test. So same sample divided into two, different samples, but at the same time. So And, and that always came within 0.2, 0.3 of a millimolar, which for a home device, I'm very happy with. Yeah. So the two markers that I decided to focus on in my research and with my research project, including the couple of papers that we published, were heart availability, which I understand you're very familiar with, mm-hmm. and the glucose. And so the fasting glucose, the fasting aspect to me was a little bit more practical because obviously advising someone to start to, you know, prick their finger three, four, five times a day may be realistic for me that I'm involved with, you know, with research and so on, but people that are very busy and, and have very hectic lifestyles, then obviously that would not be, you know, something that I would see a struggle within the compliance. Yeah. What, what do you think of the continual blood glucose monitors like the Dexcom G6, for example? I have not used specifically that model. However, the reports are brilliant. I've used mm. the, the Dexcom G4 and G5. Okay. And interestingly, I actually won the Dexcom and the Libre at the same time. Mm-hmm. That was an interesting, yes. So the Dexcom, in my view, because of the self-calibration and the manual calibration that you can carry out, I tend to prefer it. The Libre is, I think, is very useful for people that that, that are diabetics. So basically, where the fasting glucose and all the glucose value is reasonably high. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there are implications because you kind of anyone can order the Libre, whereas with the Dexcom is a little bit more complicated, as far as I understand it. However, to answer your question, the reports I had on the Dexcom are brilliant as far as kit device and the accuracy of it. The value on that, I personally think that is brilliant. Mm. The reason being is in my research project, which was self-funded, as far as I could push it, but also found some of the uh, subject within the cohort. So it was it was really small cohort in, as far as continuous glucose monitoring. However, within that cohort, people also decided to kind of purchase themselves to help mm-hmm. me out with my research, and I was offering in return my interpretation and my views, my understanding of what what you know. So basically, like a consultation that they could have in exchange, and. What was really, really interesting for me is that different things in people's lifestyle affected the individual differently. So basically, for me, I realized that eating little and often and stress response are two of the major pivotal points in upsetting my glycemic level. In upsetting it. That is correct. Okay, so you were seeing big spikes when you were eating little and often, and then with stress. The spikes, I'm not sure that this, I'm sure that there are people that would strongly disagree with this, but however, the spikes, I didn't really get too much worried about. Okay. What I was worried about is that they stayed up. Yep. So then you can start to see that, you know, HbA1c, so that the higher is the glucose level and given how long that a certain given level can stay at that stage, then obviously 
that is glycation of it. Mm. So to me, the problem is if I had a spike and went back to norm uh, reasonably quickly, I was kind of okay with it. Maybe there were a little bit more cravings due to the drop, the fast drop of that spike. Mm-hmm. However, what I was more concerned is that the spike, someone can have an idea that is actually happening, i.e. see what people, when, when people have certain type of stimulants added with sugar, they feel the actual effects. Unfortunately, the constant, constantly risen level, people don't feel. I definitely couldn't feel it. And at times, especially after heavy grain-based meals, I could see my, my fasting glucose staying above 6.57 millimolar for two to three hours, which for me is not acceptable. Yeah. Obviously. And I'm assuming you weren't doing any sort of postprandial, post-meal exercise. You were just, you just eating the meal, tracking yep. the blood glucose. Yeah. That That's interesting because when I was wearing the Dexcom G6, the thing, and I'll admit that I eat a pretty good diet, but I have the odd bad thing and I've got a dreadful liking for Cadbury's. So chocolate fingers and Cadbury's whole nut are two of my guilty pleasures. And whilst I was wearing the, G, the G6, I thought I'm not going to stop eating those foods, but I'll see what effect they have on blood sugar. Awesome. Now they did, they did spike it as you would expect, but the thing that spiked it most was white rice. And kept it elevated for the longest as well was white rice. Now, in some ways, that's not a surprise because I know from my genetic tests that I'm highly sensitive to carbohydrate. But I was surprised that it was a higher, caused a higher spike than what we know to be a junk food. That is correct. So, I mean, the, the, what I'm saying that is correct is that for you is that, for someone else, maybe different. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Also, sometimes people may get a little bit confused on the absorption rate. So for example, if you have something that is very, very quickly absorbed and is, uh, there is a you know, quick digestion, then you see the spike goes back to the norm and that, that's that. Mm. If you have certain, more, certain type of more complex carbohydrate, obviously it's going to take longer for the body to digest that and release it. So maybe you have a flatter curve that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. However, when it stays prolonged for such a long time, then obviously there is something else that you may want to consider. Yeah. So the, the interesting point may be, for example, for people to actually have the certain, the, a given amount of carbohydrates to measure the curves, given the same amount of carbohydrates but different types of carbohydrates. And that is when we realized there were some major differences. Some people did with grain very, very well. Some other people did with sugars very, very well. I seem to be one of the people that deals with sugars very well, but grains, not very well. Right. And that is, to me, so if I have a very heavy, say, grain-based meal and I wouldn't exercise, on top of that, I'm very stressed, I can put hands on fire I would be very, very surprised if in the evening before I retire, my fasting glucose is still not around six. Mm. So you see that as the combinations of factors, which is the reason why sometimes I say, I say to people, unless you test it, I can tell you what are the 10 most common factors affecting the fasting glucose and postprandial glucose and intraprandial curve. However, because of our specific response that is 
I wouldn't say unique, but there are different options, but these are, are, are still different from one another. I personally believe that people may get great benefit in testing that. Yeah. I. And Yes, please carry on. And I was just going to say, I, I absolutely agree. But I mean, f- finish what you were going to say, because then I was going to ask you about stress and that and the impact of that on blood sugar. Yeah, if people can get their hands on an ongoing glucose monitoring system, that's brilliant. Otherwise, they can still measure the two cardinals, the one I tend to use. One is first thing in the morning, fasting, and the other one will be, you know, just before retiring. Okay. So f- first thing or last thing? Yeah, that is correct. That's correct. The one that seems to, we keep going back to, is definitely the fasting in the morning. Yeah. And what people may find is that the impact, they will realize how poor sleep dramatically upsets fasting glucose. Wow. Can we just just pause there? What do you suggest people use? What would your recommendation be for them to do that morning or that evening test? As in the type of kits and devices? Yes, exactly. Just just briefly, if someone thought, right, yeah, I'm going to do that, what, what would be your recommendation? Cool. So far, the, amongst the one I have tested, and I've tested the Menarini, I've tested the Abbott's, I've tested you know diff- different different brands. They're all kind of there. However, Abbott's normally come out best. Okay. As far as compared to, and also when when if I test for Abbott's, they're all very very consistent with one another. Mm-hmm. And you know me a little bit you know what I'm like in testing things. I, I yep. move things through the paces kind of stuff. So yeah, yep. I took, you know, three samples within the same drop of blood and three different monitors, three samples, the same drop of blood, within the same monitor, and then distancing that over a period of five minutes. And Abbott has always been very consistent, very, very consistent. So once you, you have an idea of the absolute value on you know, freestyle Neo, you can find it pretty much anywhere, even mm-hmm. Amazon or even eBay or whatever. And it's not that expensive if people only measure once a day. Yeah. Okay. So you wouldn't suggest an HbA1c test using a, a self-administered blood test. You'd suggest using one of the blood glucose monitors. Brilliant. Yes, they can. But that is over a period of three months. So okay. they may struggle to, to, to pinpoint exactly what may have driven HbA1c to be like that. Yes. So yeah. if they say, for example, I tell you when it's really, really helpful to actually look at long-term interventions. So mm-hmm. for example, they say, right, this month I'm going to do this. And they do roughly the same things every day, every, you know, for the, for the whole month, every day for the whole month. So they say, okay, I remove, I remove grains, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. However the total result, the end result, doesn't tell them which of the intervention may have brought the biggest advantage. Yeah, got it. Okay, cool. I'd like to talk about two things. You were about to talk about sleep, and I'd love to talk about the effect of stress as well as sleep on blood glucose in in the time that we've got left. So I appreciate it's not very long, but what what, what would you say about the impact of, of sleep on blood glucose? So... The vast majority of the small cohorts I had and looking at the more extensive number of people in my clinic research when when I used to see patients, what I started to notice is that something to me really interesting. So if someone has 
a certain degree of sleep. Okay, so let's assume they can squeeze the, the usual seven and a half hours and their glucose is at a certain level pseudo-optimal. Now, one night of disrupted sleep doesn't seem to affect it contrarily to what some experts have reported. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that I'm right and I'm wrong. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we have measured it in fasting glucose as far as just that fasting glucose seems to be, if anything, a tad lower. Okay. Which I can make all sorts of assumptions, but it would be, it would be picking them up out of thin air, really. Mm. Mm. So I wouldn't even bother you know, asking me that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Did you look at it over a more prolonged period? So several nights of short or broken sleep. Okay, that's the interesting bit. From the second to third night onwards, then we started to see dramatically different figures mm. and values. So I'm talking 0.8 of a millimolar to 1.2 millimolars doing the same things the day before with considerably similar diet. Right. And if you look at the, the work of Professor Matthew Walker and mm -hmm. his, his, his podcast and books, if you look at other experts within the sleep, there is a lovely doctor, PhD, Dr. Bender, Amy Bender in Canada, I believe, they're doing great work on the subject. And I kind of took part of the work they did and try to make sense of fasting glucose and actually see if there was some associations. And we still do not fully know if it's causative or not. However, the association is pretty strong from the second to third night onwards. Right. However, the caveat to that, this is where it gets really concerning, is that these were people that had decent sleep to start with and then had this disruption. For people that have continuous disruptions, so for people that, say, sleep poorly or not enough, every night the fasting glucose is already elevated. Mm. And unfortunately, one of the ways that these people then try to control that is through physical activity and or dietary restrictions. Mm -hmm. That is a, in my view, it's a sticky, is a kind of sticky plaster approach. It normally doesn't last that long. It can last a month, two months, three months, six, twelve. Unfortunately, in the end, we start to see, even in athlete. Uh, okay, just to give an example, in athletes that we cannot explain through training or anything else that they are doing their fasting glucose going over the five millimolar, I can normally put hands on fire, the sleep has gone to pot. Mm. This is how we can kind of have such a good estimated guess because it's, it, it's enough even for an athlete to disrupt their glycemic levels. Yeah, so you cannot exercise or, or any short-term intervention actually isn't necessarily going to help get that blood glucose down. You cannot outrun your rest. Yeah. You just can't. Yeah. Okay. And, and briefly on stress, what impact does that have on blood sugar? Because I, I noticed that it increased mine, but I'm talking about stress caused by exercise. So you stress, if you like. <laughs> yes. So that may be slightly differently answered. Yeah. If you, yeah. 
if you look at your HIV and you start to see your HIV averages, so in the first bit you can sum up the night average and the day average. Mm -hmm. If you see that these two are dropping, leaving even to aside the frequencies, but if these two are dropping and the fasting glucose is increasing, normally that would be under recovery. Right. So then the sleep becomes really pivotal because in that way, you would, in a way, you would address two things with one move. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Now, if you start to see the fasting glucose increasing, apart from the usual, the diet, et cetera, which we already mentioned, I would definitely assess the length of the sleep and the quality of the sleep. Stress affects both, one more than the other. And also, in addition to that, has its own effect on the actual fasting glucose and glucose in general. In my case, it's been found to be one of the biggest two factors affecting my personal fasting glucose. And I was measuring the stress response the day before. In other individuals, didn't seem to bring actually much of a change. So once again, it's very, very individual. For me, the problem wasn't the fact that the glucose was spiked when I was wearing a continuous glucose monitoring, but it was the fact that it kept being at that level for hours and hours and hours. So in my specific case, and perhaps in your case, and whatever, how many people case, stress could have the effect of in keeping the, the glucose, even intraprandial, elevated for mm -hmm. quite some time. And there are obviously effects on insulin response and cortisol, and so all of these affect glucose regulations, but doesn't seem to be the single instance. So if your lifestyle and your stress response is, is okay, and then you have, I don't know, whatever, a very stressful 15, 20, 30 minutes or an hour, whatever that may be, then within a certain length of time, normally it goes back to normal. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the chronicity of it brings changes, especially at hormonal levels, and even involving cytokines and intunucans that will maintain the glucose in general, not just the fasting, elevated. And according to my research, a really interesting avenue to that I would love to explore further with um, a couple of colleagues that are immunologists, are actually the changes that actually bring to the, our immune system, not just necessarily our hormones. Right. Also changing the effect how the cells are sensitized to insulin, and you know, it, it, there are quite substantial changes, but I'm really fascinated by our immune system. Yeah. So, yeah. So in a nutshell, chronic low medium-grade stress on a daily basis, I personally think would be one of the strong risk factors that I would want to look into. Right. Brilliant. I mean, I feel like we've, we're just about to take an interesting turn, but obviously we're running low on time. So it sounds to me then... Blood glucose is something that people should be concerned about. They can do some relatively simple testing. You're re recommending the Abbott Libra. I'll link to the Dexcom, the Abbott, the HbA1c test, and everything yeah. in the show notes. Short-term interventions for elevated blood sugar could be diet and exercise, but they're short-term. The long-term fixes, not the plaster, but the long-term solution is managing stress 
and sleep from what I'm hearing. Is that a fair summary? Indeed, indeed. In fact, if these two are controlled and the person is reasonably healthy, no macro proportion changes brought any measurable changes to the fasting glucose. Right. So sleep and stress were managed. That is correct. So basically, yeah. when people control for stress and when people address the stress and address the sleep and address the timing of the eatings, whichever proportion of carbohydrates, if they were on a Mediterranean diet, on a, on a pseudo-keto diet or whatever diet, so basically the proportions of the, of the macros, proteins, carbohydrates and fats, didn't seem to matter, leading to optimal values as long as stress, sleep and the timing of the eating was controlled. Fascinating. And the timing of the eating is something that I did want to touch on, but I was too, too ambitious in what we could do in 30 minutes. Maybe we could do a part two and talk about timing. So f- types of fasting, meal timings and so on. But that's been fascinating, sure. Alessandro. Thank you so much for your time. Is it best to send people to your website, which is alessandroferretti.co.uk? I'll put that in the show notes. That's the one, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. It's a little bit data haven't updated it for quite some time i've gone a bit rogue Uh, (laughs) (laughs) they can see they can see bits and pieces i have a couple of videos on free there's nothing to buy so they they don't have to have the guards up or anything yeah you know and and they go in the video section and they see what i've been up to and how i came to the conclusions that we we have observed in our in our research yeah and I, I, there's even a section here on the woodwork that you love doing. It's obviously one of your passions. Yeah. Looks, Yeah, some beautiful stuff there. Alessandro, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening as well. We'll link to everything we've talked about in the show notes and maybe we'll do that part two. Always a pleasure, Leanne. And uh, thank you for people like you to do the work that you do. Well, awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? jump on our website www.bodyshotperformance.com and click on take the test it'll take you through to a short two to three minute test and at the end of that you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals sleep mental health energy body composition digestion and fitness and if you've enjoyed this episode please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them and of course don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review thank you very much for listening